0: Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where we unpack big philosophical questions, making them applicable for a life well lived. Ever Desireless, I'm Taylor Jones.
1: Just an uncarved block, I'm Andrew Graziano.
2: And as empty a vessel as you can get, I'm Derek Parsons.
0: Welcome to episode 51, the first of a four part series on Eastern philosophy. Today, it's Taoism, but first, how's it going, guys?
1: Life is, uh, I, I don't really know what to say. I feel like it's uh, its a continuation of uh, summer where I'm just stuck in a void of uh, reading and time is never passing. So, take that as excitingly as, as one may. Yes, <laughs> very exciting.
2: Andrew's stuck in the absurd cycle. Well, everything's great for me. The weather's much nicer today than last time we recorded. Which is nice. I have research papers coming in next week, which will be the the death of me. But nonetheless, this weekend is relatively free, so I'm excited about that. It's a three day weekend for me too, so nice. going to enjoy a little uh, football for everyone else. That's called soccer, and sit in my chair. It's going to be great. How about you, Taylor? That's nice.
0: Um, well, it's coming up on midterm season for me, so
2: that's right. Yeah. yeah.
0: This past week was calm, but the week before was crazy, and I think we're going into another crazy two-week stretch before spring break. But other than that, I mean, we're making it, and I just learned I'm graduating a year early, so exciting things. Yeah,
2: that's fantastic. Congratulations, Taylor. That's that's awesome. That's great. Man, Andrew just graduated. Taylor's graduating a year early. I'm just sitting here in my house. (laughs) I need to accomplish some things, I guess oh well anyway speaking of accomplishing things uh i made a tiktok video oh (laughs) nothing should scare people more than that particular statement i just made but it's not really a video it's uh it's a little graphic that moves around a little bit anyway it was a question i posed a question on twitter and we got quite a bit of response i was really surprised how many people voted in the poll anyway the question was are Batman and Bruce Wayne the same person? So it's really a question about identity, philosophically speaking. <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of respondents. Anyway, the results were, yes, 47%. No, 53%. So I was really surprised no won that one out. I don't know. Thoughts on that issue, guys?
0: I don't really know much about Batman, personally, because... Oh, geez. Yeah, I didn't grow up in a like super like y family, I don't know I think that they're like kind of different because Batman is his alter ego right so he becomes something else when he's Batman but I wouldn't say they're completely separate either
1: oh gosh I'm I'm the opposite I love 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 (laughs) Batman with the Christopher Nolan series specifically is is uh one of my all-time favorites I think it it's fantastic but you're not listening for my movie suggestions either so uh (laughs) that's great But I really do love that series. I don't know why they would be different. I I just really don't know. I guess, uh, you know, maybe they act differently or something. But maybe it's just a a little bit of a more extreme, you know, Batman puts on different masks. He's different people in, I guess, that regard. But we all, uh, I, I forget where I was listening to this yesterday, but we all put on different masks for different events that we go to. Act differently with our parents than our friends, so I don't see why it would be any different than that when we're uh, out on the town riding a motorcycle and catching some criminals. What do you think, Mister?
2: Yeah, from an identity perspective, I think the issue here is is substance versus you know outward identity or whatever. Like obviously, Batman and Bruce Wayne, as far as their uh, physical makeup are they're the same, right? They're, it's it's the same human body doing the doing the things, but you know, as far as persona goes, which is a debate about whether or not that counts as your identity or not uh you know depending on which batman you're looking at he, he might be two very different people this is one of the the great quotes
1: from the christopher nolan uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think batman himself addresses this he's speaking to his longtime crush and childhood friend rachel and uh batman or bruce says it's not who i am underneath the mask but what i do that defines me so
2: Oh, you know, okay. Wow. Well, that's even yeah. a bigger question because now <laughs> we're talking about is what you do who you are. But, uh, yes. mm.
0: you know what this reminds me of? We were just reading Sartre, the second chapter of Being in Nothingness, where he talks about bad faith mm. and gives the waiter example about is the waiter acting in bad faith and like what, where does that line cross to where you become? A facet of what you do and that's how you define yourself yeah
2: that is interesting it's andrew's uh, favorite topic to talk about the waiter sart's waiter (laughs) you know that episode on sart we spent like 15 minutes talking about this waiter (laughs) (laughs) it's a poor dude you know i know that poor guy Jeez. (laughs) well anyway everyone thanks for responding to the poll it was a lot of fun and that's how it all shook out so there you go Before we get to this uh, Tao
1: episode, though, I want to spring a mystery game on y'all. That's that's a surprise. I've been wanting to do this for a month, and, and I <laughs> months and months,
2: like plural.
1: Um, literally months. <laughs> for okay. Months. I'm really excited about this. There's been this rise in the past few months of this thing called ChatGPT. Oh yeah. ChatGPT is this uh, oh. artificial intelligence that scraped the internet. And it's basically like a chat bot. And so today, I have this game called Nietzsche, Socrates, or ChatGPT.
2: Oh, this is awesome.
1: The rules are quite simple. I have three quotes here, and you have the choice between ChatGPT, Socrates, or Nietzsche. Okay. So let me go to question one.
2: Now, now, is it like uh, Taylor and I are trying to beat each other to the right answer, or? You just, I'll, I'll say
1: one, two, three. Y'all will both say an answer, and we'll see. Oh, okay. I, it
2: right. I mean, Nietzsche okay. would be very happy with competition.
0: Do we get bonus points if we can guess oh. where the quote is from?
2: <laughs> We're really upping the ante are they here like now. These are famous not famous quotes, quotes
1: but I, you will uh, get a okay. bonus points. Okay.
2: Oh, okay. Um, okay, go for it. Okay, so
1: question number one. What a disgrace it is for a man to grow old without ever seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable. Socrates, ChatGPT, or Nietzsche? Okay, so everybody have their answers? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so three, two, one. ChatGPT. What did you say, Taylor? Nietzsche. We need to insert a buzzer noise. Both of you are wrong. This is a Socrates quote. It's Socrates? <laughs> this is a Socrates quote. What? I picked this one. No. I picked this one What's just as a, uh, just as a, I knew this would throw people off. Socrates is the Uber bench. I know. That's what, <laughs> let me pull it up from where I got it from. Cause I, I think this is from the Republic.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, neither of us scored points, Taylor. All right. Number, number two. Points. Let's do okay. it. Okay.
0: So we got Nietzsche and Chat GPT no, left?
2: I'm not
1: saying that. These could all be Socrates quotes. Oh. In fact, I've just I have oh, okay. like I have twelve quotes here. I'm picking one of these twelve. at random. It could be anybody. So next quote. The human experience is a tapestry of joy and suffering woven together by the threads of choice and consequence.
2: Okay. Mm-hmm. So I mean it's kind of generic enough sounding to be Chat GPT trying to be Nietzsche. Right. Okay.
0: But is he trying to like double trick us?
2: Okay. Everybody have an answer. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Three, two, one. Nietzsche.
1: ChatGPT. Oh, okay. swap Taylor. So one of you has it right, uh, <laughs> and that is Taylor. It is uh, ChatGPT. It was
2: ChatGPT.
1: I thought it would sound like a Nietzsche quote, though. So yeah.
2: yeah. Good.
0: It felt like too
1: two. Two. Okay.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. That's why I said it it was it was like generic enough sounding that it's, mm-hmm. it's ChatGPT.
1: So this one could be anyone. Actually, yeah, this could be anyone. I'm going to mix it up. This could still be Socrates. This could be <laughs> I'm not going to say who. Last one. Altruism is becoming someone else. Egoism is becoming yourself. Everybody got it. I
2: don't it? feel like Nietzsche said a lot about altruism, but but maybe not. I've certainly not read at all everything that he's written.
1: But he does
0: talk a lot about, like, becoming yourself and not denying your identity.
2: Yeah. I don't feel like Socrates talked about altruism. Of course, I could be very wrong.
0: It could be Chad GPT.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, count us down, Andrew.
1: All right. Three, two,
2: one. Nietzsche. Nietzsche.
1: Yeah. Both of you are right. Yay! (laughs) So, not bad. Not bad. Um, Taylor wins, though. Taylor wins. What is
0: that one from?
1: Uh, this one is is uh from Reddit. It's a Reddit. <laughs> yeah, it's from
2: Reddit. <laughs> Nietzsche's great work. Reddit. <laughs>
1: I agree with uh Mr. Parsons, and and I think Taylor, you said this too that ChatGPT sounds a little too generic, but it has some very like artistic quotes. One of them was about uh, the weavings of a tapestry. Mm-hmm. Really cool stuff. So that's great. Well, all
2: right, that was fun, Andrew. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in for this particular episode. We're excited to kick off this whole Eastern philosophy series that we're doing. The first one we've chosen is the one that all three of us are familiar with because uh, we've studied it in my class together. It's Taoism. But we're also going to look into Confucianism, Buddhism, and Hinduism. I don't know necessarily in that order. Next episode is Confucianism, however. So two of these are from China, two are from India, although Buddhism spread outside of India after it began. These are all what we would call a philosophies of life, which involves certain aspects that perhaps other more abstract type philosophy or epistemology may not necessarily address.
1: Longtime listeners will probably remember that a few years ago, I was a teaching assistant for this course called Philosophy as a Way of Life. And I think just semantically, there's kind of this difference of a philosophy of life versus philosophy as a way of life. There's a semantic difference there. And I think the distinction's important because a long time ago, we talked about what philosophy as a way of life means versus philosophy of life, right? That's what we said. When I think of philosophy of life, what I think of is that there has to be, well, I'll even skip the complex philosophy language for a minute thinking about a philosophy of life is there doesn't need to be anything like meaning attached or anything like that, like how we find meaning, but just as um, a thought process on how we see the world and what obligations we think we have to the world around us. But then there's another element behind that, which is the why. Why do we think that's right? And a philosophy of life, I think, should encompass all of those questions. So, Those are really, I'm looking at this in a very analytic Western way too, so this isn't necessarily great to start the Taoism episode or Taoism episode, but when I think of a philosophy of life, when it has all of those components, it has that ethical component, what obligations do we have, how should we live, but it also has that uh, metaphysical component behind it, why do we think those things are correct and such. So that's what I think of when I think about a philosophy of life. Uh, what do y'all think?
0: I think that philosophies of life tend to be very practical, and they go more towards how to live your day-to-day life. Especially with the Tao Ching, it gives you very practical advice for what to do in a given situation and how to fulfill sometimes your social role and what that means to you as a person.
2: Yeah, and to compare it to, say, like ethics, uh, Andrew did bring up ethics. You know, this is different than, say, like a normative ethic like utilitarianism or something. Yeah, All that does is seeks to try to discern what is right and wrong, whereas a philosophy of life is going to build in some type of explanation of why the universe is the way it is. And that's probably one of the big things that differ. And then how do we implement that in our lives on a daily basis, like Taylor said?
1: We've talked about uh, philosophies philosophies of life before. The big one that comes to mind is Stoicism. We've spent a lot mm-hmm. of time on Stoicism, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of my problems with modern Stoicism, at least, is that it ignores that metaphysical component—the reason why things are—and that's something that's uh, very different with Taoism, and it's something that I think a lot of a lot of philosophers have. The biggest one that I'm thinking of is Schopenhauer, really uh, pulled from these Eastern traditions, really fell in love with their metaphysics. It just seems like there's so much metaphysics, that why of things. Uh, So I'm super excited to talk about this stuff with y'all. And I think we were talking before the show, this is the only one of these Eastern philosophies of life that we've actually all studied together, or kind of Mm -hmm. together. Taylor and I didn't study it together. But (laughs) Mr. Parsons taught both of us uh, Mm -hmm. Taoism, so that's great.
0: (laughs) Which that's very connected to the Eastern tradition because they're led by a teacher that teaches them of the great work.
2: Well, now we're getting way too far. (laughs) I mean, I guess I did teach you this great work, but I'm certainly no (laughs) Lao Tzu. So another thing to, to say about these, and we've all kind of alluded to it already, is so there is this difference between what we'd call Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. There's a lot of stereotypes about that. There's a lot of uh, and sometimes the stereotypes are true of those differences. There have been lots of philosophers intrigued, especially once the ancient text began being translated into English, French, German. This largely happened in the like 19th century. 18th and 19th century uh, for instance the American Ralph Waldo Emerson was very interested in Hinduism and Buddhism read a lot on it and that's largely because it was now available in English so anyway uh, yeah what are some of you guys perceptions of sort of the differences between Eastern and, and Western philosophy whether that's based in something you've actually studied or whether that's just you know sort of a common perception
0: yeah So I've studied Taoism, a little bit of Confucianism, and then Hinduism in the past semester or so. And I think one of the biggest things is that Eastern philosophies talk a lot about the Mm. family unit and how each individual is supposed to act and, like, fulfill a certain role and how they interact with everyone else. So, like, Confucianism talks a lot about how... A man is supposed to lead their family, but also how a woman is supposed to interact with her husband's family members and what your role in society is supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. And I think that's really interesting because you don't see that as mm. much in Western philosophy.
1: Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, I took a, a class on Buddhism. It was a very interesting class, but I guess this is probably the big thing that uh, comes to me is when I think about these, I think of them which is probably incorrect, but I think about them more as uh, religious philosophies than I, I do about the Western tradition. I'm much, I mean, there's no comparison. I, I solely studied Western philosophy in, in my time at Rice and definitely looked at Buddhism from a, a, a religious angle. So,
2: I guess the two things I think of, and I'm going to echo what you said, Andrew, or add to it or whatever. Well, first of all, I think of eastern philosophy as being far less analytical in terms of like just a methodology it seems to be more based in what in the west we might call wisdom traditions right that particular phrase instead of philosophy which maybe we have you know a more formalized idea of of that when we say philosophy versus some wisdom tradition i don't know that's necessarily fair to the eastern philosophies and frankly I don't really know if they're any more or less analytical. That's just kind of my impression. But the other one is this is always something important to bring up with Eastern philosophies. Many times, religion is interwoven with philosophy. You know, here in the West, we separate those things. We have a field called theology, and then we have philosophy. Or even within philosophy, we have a field called philosophy of religion that deals specifically with religious issues. Whereas in the East, those things are are intermingled. There's no separation of those two things. And, of course, Western philosophy used to be that way uh, hundreds of hundreds of years ago. It's really since, I don't know, I would guess I'd say the Middle Ages that, that those two things began to separate, and certainly by the modern era, they were separate. That's kind of uh, the things I think of when I think of maybe some of the differences.
0: Yeah, and Eastern philosophy is also, it tends to be deeply interwoven with the oh, government. Yeah? I think of Confucianism and ancient chinese governments where they a lot of the civil service exams were made up of like you had to study confucianism to gain governmental standing and it impacted how the entire country was run for hundreds of years between Mm -hmm. dynasties
1: let me bounce back to that religion point and then i might have have something to say about this legalistic point too that might not be the right language actually
2: well there is a Chinese tradition yeah. called legalism that we're not covering, I, yeah. which was around the same time as Taoism and Confucianism. but anyway, go on. Here's the really great
1: thing about having a kind of religious aspect to philosophy. both provides a way of knowing things to be true. for instance, uh, oh why do I believe why do I believe X is true? Well, this religious backing is giving me some reason to believe it and I can most notably think of that in, in Buddhism. Also, second part to that is when a philosophy is based in a religious tradition, it also gives explanation and and firm grounding to why things exist, but also how things come into existence, how things exist in the world, their natural elements. In philosophy, Western analytic philosophy, we'd say, uh, when a philosophy is based in religion, it gives it both an epistemological and metaphysical and ontological basis that's really, really strong and gives you a really clear perception of the world if it's based on religion that some analytic philosophy really doesn't have as strong of.
2: Maybe a a couple other introductory things to say. Poor Taoism. It'll probably get less time than all the other ones. (laughs) Is that all these Eastern philosophies that we're looking at are very old. Buddhism will be the most... Recent of them in terms of development, which I want to say was around 600 BC. I could be wrong. It's been a long time <laughs> since I've looked at that. But Taoism, 2,500 years ago, Confucianism, about the same time as Taoism, Hinduism, my gosh, that's such a multifaceted belief system. It goes back possibly tens, 10,000 years. Uh, it was only formalized. In some sort of writing, I want to say the Vedas, but I want to say those were compiled, gosh, I don't know, 4,500 years ago. I could be off on some of those dates. Don't send me hate mail. The point is, they're all very old, and they predate Christianity, but some of these were being developed about the same time as, say, like Greek philosophy was in play, and certainly some of the other older Mesopotamian religions like Zoroastrianism and Judaism as well. So. An interesting time period in history. Some people call it the Axial Age. I don't know if you guys have heard that term. There's a particular, a very wide range of time that uh, some have identified as just this time period where multiple philosophies of this nature developed in in various, asp- various parts of the world. So we said that these philosophies are intermingled with religion. Is Taoism a, a religion? That's a question I get a lot. Buddhism and Hinduism are certainly considered religions. Is Taoism a religion?
0: I don't really know much about how the faith is practiced outside of the text of the Tao Te Ching. I think that there are Taoist temples in China, if I'm remembering correctly from lectures that we've had. But I don't know how the like if the Chinese people or like Asian people would consider Taoism a religion the way that they do. Some of the other philosophies
2: of life. Yeah. If you think about how many different facets of Christianity there are, it's a wide variety. Everything from Eastern Orthodox to Gnosticism to Mormonism to the bazillion Protestant faiths, uh, (laughs) Catholicism, Catholicism in different parts of the world. It looked different ways. So, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I understand the Taoist religion. There is a religion based around Taoism. And you're right, Taylor. They do have temples. Uh, they have gods and deities that they worship. How that connects with their Taoist text of, like, Dao De Jing, I do not know, and I'm not going to pretend to know. <laughs> so that's my answer to it. I don't know. Sometimes, a, a lot of times in history, we see someone comes along with some really good philosophy. It's usually a counterculture type of movement. Certainly, Lao Tzu was a counterculture sort of figure who is resisting. The uh, the dynastic bureaucratic system of China. We'll see this when we when we read the text. How unbureaucratic it is. You know, sometimes people come along afterwards, hundred years, a couple hundred years later, and and they take that philosophy and make a religion out of it. It certainly happened with Platonism with Plato. I think it's a great
1: point. I think the intermingling of philosophy and religion is not something new to this podcast. We've basically there's elements of Platonic philosophy, Stoic philosophy, for sure, Aristotelianism, all in Christianity too, which is great. And the fact that it does doesn't really mean anything to these religions, other than they just are endorsing these philosophies and they think they're true and they think they're right. So that shouldn't come as a surprise to to listeners. Or if it does, then this isn't unique to Eastern philosophy. Let me say one yeah. one more thing. I think this is appropriate too, and you can cut this out future, Mr. Parsons. But if you want to really, really dive in depth to specifically Indian philosophy, but any of the rest, but have some great experts since we're just covering kind of an introductory level, Peter Adamson, Jonathan Gannery, and Chike Jeffers have this great podcast called The History of Indian and Africana Philosophy. They go very in-depth, they're all experts, and so if you're interested in, in in diving into depth with anything, that's a great starting place after you hear our entire series.
2: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, good plug. Well, let me give everyone the sort of Wikipedia <laughs> version of what Taoism is, and then we'll start talking about specifics. So, Taoism is a philosophical belief system that began about 2,500 years ago. They cite a man by the name of Lao Tzu as the originator of that particular philosophical system. There is some debate as to whether or not Lao Tzu actually existed and that this primary text we're going to talk about today called the Tao Te Ching, which is their primary text, sacred text. They have one other primary text they reference. It's called Shangxi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I've read that as well. It's got some cool stuff in it. But it was, a kind of, like I said earlier, it was a counterculture movement. This was a period in Chinese history where that they call the, the period of warring states. And it's just a time period where the bureaucracy, dynastic, bureaucratic system of government has fallen apart and all these warlords, local warlords are vying for power. And so you'll have a lot of, a lot of references to the importance of leadership and how one should lead in the Tao Te Ching, amongst other things. But that's why there's such a focus on leadership. So that's really it. As the apocryphal story goes, Lao Tzu was leaving the city. He was out of here. He's like, forget all this business. I'm going to go live in the mountains. And a guard stopped him on the way out of the city and was like, oh, my gosh, are you Lao Tzu? And (laughs) he's like, well, yes, I am. Leave me alone. I'm going to live in the mountains and be a hermit. And the guard was like. No, you're 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 one of the most wisest people ever. But before I can let you pass, you must tell me your wisdom. And supposedly that's how the Tao Te Ching came about. But like I said, most scholars certainly Lao Tzu, if he was a person, contributed to this in many ways. But many scholars, as we see with other philosophical traditions, especially embedded with a type of religion usually it's the followers of that one person that kind of begin to compile and write important things about that person. And so they believe that the Tao Te Ching is the result of probably a lot of of followers of early Taoism back then. And I guess one last thing on specifically speaking of the Tao Te Ching, it is a collection of 81 poems. That's what the Tao Te Ching is. So it's interesting in that this is a philosophical work that comes to us in the form of poetry and uh it is the second most translated book in the world, uh, second only to the Bible, anyway, there we go. So now we know what Taoism is. How would we summarize the tenets or the beliefs or what's important to Taoism? Um,
0: it's really hard, I would say to summarize what the Dao Te Ching talks about in like a concise way because it is so vast, but I would think I would say one of the most important things to Taoism is balance and the harmony of opposites and you see that interwoven through everything in the way that nature achieves balance through water that's a huge symbol throughout the data Ching. and it really urges everyone to be like water and to pursue peace and to not rush and to go to the low places like the valleys which I personally find really comforting but I'd say that balance is kind of the biggest thing and being flexible and valuing not what is done but what's left undone or unfilled and how that factors in to the way that you
2: live your life. What comes to mind for you Andrew when you think of the Tao Te Ching or Taoism?
1: Well the the first thing that comes to me of course is just this notion of the the Tao is this unknowable concept that I, I believe is at the root of all things is that is that right mm hmm it's kind of the center of all things first line the Tao that cannot be told that can be told is not the eternal Tao which is really interesting and, mm-hmm. and so I think that's a thing I remember That One thing that I thought was always very interesting is I believe the first half is more of a a personal reflections on the Tao. Second half is a political, kind of more political philosophy. Mm -hmm. And and both of you feel free to correct me. And then the third thing that I always think of, just because this I feel like was beat to death in my class and I never really understood it. But a lot of people did and that's no fault for You, Mr. Parsons, I was just a lazy senior. Uh, It was this (laughs) this concept of Wu Wei. uh, Uh, Oh, it's a difficult
2: concept. Mm -hmm. uh,
1: So, so those are the big things that come to mind.
2: My conception of it, when I think of what Taoism embodies, is a lot of what you guys said: the notions of harmony, the notions of balance, simplicity, following nature. Mm -hmm. uh, In terms of. Understand that you're a part of nature as well and to do what is natural, I mean, if we're going to talk about balance, the one thing that listeners will be familiar with from Taoism because I feel like I feel like most people have have some familiarity with Hinduism and Buddhism. Confucianism and Taoism, maybe not so much, but at least people have probably seen quotes from Confucius because that's something people do, mm-hmm. but Taoism. People probably are not very familiar with that, but there's one thing that they will totally know about Taoism, and that's the yin-yang symbol. So when you think of Taoism, their symbol is the yin-yang. And if you want to talk about ideas of balance and harmony, of course, you have a black side and a white side, and all it's very symbolic, and it's it's wavy instead of square. And so in other words, it's, it's being connected, right? And that there's two sides to, I think one of you said this, two sides to, to really everything. There's this idea of, The unity of opposites you know we might think dark and light are opposite of each other when in reality they're just two sides of the same coin so those are some of the big ideas i think about andrew wu wei is is probably the most difficult concept in in taoism first of all just to understand it but then secondly to try to live it is even more confusing but we'll talk about that (laughs) So let's get to, how about let's just do poem one, right? Because one question is, what is the Tao? So the book Tao De Ching, let's talk about that translation. The The book, t, which is T-A-O or D-A-O, depending on your translation. The Tao is very simply the way or the path. Tao De Jing, da, stands for virtue. Now, that's kind of problematic because in the West we have this notion of virtue that's associated with, uh, Aristotelianism. And then Qing just simply means book. So it's the book of the way to virtue or the book of the path to virtue. But let's talk about what the Tao is itself. And now we get into like the metaphysics of of Taoism.
1: What translation art do you all have? I'm looking at three translations.
2: It's the uh, Finn English translation. Darn.
1: Okay. I'm looking at this page called Yellow Bridge online that has a word by word translation along with three translations, which is pretty cool. But I guess I can read one of these and then maybe all can read one and we can compare. Sure. Okay.
2: Oh yeah. And for listeners, the data jing is like a translation rabbit hole. Once you go down it, <laughs> you might not yeah. find your way out.
1: You have the Fing the Fing translation too? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I have a copy of that one too. Yeah. I like this this one's pretty cool. This is from the Goddard translation. The Tao that cannot be understood cannot be the primal or cosmic Tao. Just as an idea that can be expressed in words cannot be the infinite idea.
2: Yeah. So, Hana, why, why don't you read the first two lines, Taylor?
0: The Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name.
2: So, those are the opening lines uh, from two different translations of poem one of the Tao Te Ching. And some people will say if you understand, Poem one, you understand all of Taoism. Uh, and I think it's like nine, nine or ten lines long. But those are the first two lines talking about exactly what the Tao is. So what is y'all's conception of the Tao?
1: That's, that's a <laughs> funny question. I never used to think about it as it this, but I'm just thinking of this platonic form, platonic mm. form of all things, mm-hmm. something that's not knowable. Completely by our small human minds, mm-hmm. but something that gives light to everything and is all, is a piece of everything. So that's that's what I think about. But you, everybody knows my background. So <laughs> Taylor, what about you? What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think it's hard to not recognize how similar the opening lines of the Tao Te Ching are to Platonic ideals, and that everything seems to be. Oriented toward an ideal that's unknowable, Mr. Parsons. What do you think?
2: Yeah. So the Tao is the closest thing to what I guess we would consider God, but the Tao is not God. It's certainly not a theistic God that we ascribe certain properties to, like omni benevolence and all that sort of stuff. The Tao is a presence that exists in all things. It is the ultimate reality of the universe is the source of all existence. And, you know, really the the ultimate goal of anyone who is a Taoist is to align themselves with the Tao and eventually become one with the Tao or union with the Tao, which probably happens after death, but it's a force that is constantly changing yet is always in balance. So there's that there's that yin yang sort of business going on there. We cannot know the Tao. We can only seek to be as much like the Tao as possible here on Earth in our human forms. And so, being like the Tao is being like all the things we've already talked about before, which is balance, harmony, and traits such as that. So, that's why the opening line to that book says, the the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. Even by naming the Tao, Tao, we have taken away from the Tao some of its Tao-ness, the name that can be named is not the eternal name. It's beyond our knowledge. We just know that it is the underlying force of all reality. And so, it certainly has no personal properties like many Western theistic conceptions of God or or the universe. And and by the way, it never gives an explanation of why it's the creator of the universe. It's just that it did.
1: I think that uh, example with the personal, it's not a personal thing is really really interesting and, and that goes with the fact that it's not named. When we give something a name, it becomes uniquely personal, personal to us. And so I think that's that's a really interesting thing. And that kind of contributes to its mystery, its infinite nature, its unintelligibility, which is super cool. And I think uh, the, the next two lines are, are really cool too speaking to that creation and, and, and presence idea. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of the 10,000 things.
2: And there are some poems that talk about sort of the origins of of the universe, but again there's never any like you know if you compare it I guess to Judaism Christianity to, to western theistic religions it's you know here's god and god created the universe for various reasons. There's no really reason that the Tao Te Ching gives for the Tao having created the universe, but it does. And it's the mother of the 10,000 things, which is all the things that we see and engage with. right? And to that aspect of mystery, Andrew, the last three lines of the poem is this appears as darkness, darkness within darkness, the gate to all mystery. And that's not meant to try to invoke some sort of void or, uh nihilistic view of things it's that darkness is mystery and sometimes things are wrapped in mystery and that mystery is dark comes in the form of darkness and, and that's the doubt it's beyond it's just beyond us
1: i think one of you mentioned this uh, natural parallelism earlier when we were kind of giving an overview but we can see it here also contributing to the mystery the nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth the named is the mother of the ten thousand things mm-hmm. In the next line, too, ever desireless one can see the mystery, ever desiring one can see the manifestations. So the name and the nameless, the named and the nameless, the desireless and the desiring, they're opposites. they're opposites. How can a thing and this this would go against uh, a huge component of, of Western philosophy too. a thing cannot be the opposite of itself, right? It's a negation. a thing can't be the negation of itself. Mm-hmm. An ice cube can never be boiling hot, right? But that's what we see here, and I think that's super cool. It's uh, The Tao is something that it is not.
0: Mm -hmm. I think (laughs) that's where the symbol of water is so powerful because it shows the way that water can be strong in a sense, but it's also soft and yielding. And it gives life rather than taking it. And it doesn't desire anything, but it seeks the lowest place.
2: Yeah, and I guess with that ice cube and boiling example, uh, and this is kind of platonic in a way, both of those things are representations of something higher, right? It ascends to whatever's next. Maybe you just call it water because water boils and water is also ice. But you're right. Yeah, the unity of opposites is is often uh, a difficult concept because... Yeah, that's what we do here in the West. Is we we separate things out, um, we create categories, and we I mean, we put things in those categories for specific reasons based on their properties. And so when you say something like light and dark, those are two different containers, um, in our in our categorization categorization system. But I guess you know, did you guys have when you were growing up? You know those those big those big boxes that you put colored beads in, you know, to make bracelets and stuff like that our kids did this yes i know what you're talking about
0: for rainbow loom that was the big thing
2: (laughs) yeah i remember that yeah i think about that when i think about Taoism sometimes Mm -hmm. like you have all these different colored beads you know but i mean they're all beads but they're different colors so you put them in different little drawers Mm -hmm. but ultimately all those beads are contained in one container even Mm -hmm. though they are separated out and You know, we think we're categorizing things, but in reality, it's a part of a greater whole. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of like, you know, in the West, we have a dualistic mind. We like to separate things. Mm -hmm. And it's it's not just Taoism. Uh, The Eastern has this tradition of the unity of all things and not a non-dualistic type of thinking. And this is exemplified a lot in, in some of these things we're talking about.
0: That idea, that'll be really important once we get to Hinduism. Just to flash forward a few episodes, but they really take the unity of the entire universe really seriously. And I think it's a really interesting way and like powerful way of looking at reality.
1: I don't want to beat this horse to death, so we can move on after this. But I think... (laughs)
2: God, I almost made a Nietzsche joke. (laughs) 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 That was his snap when the guy was beating the horse. Okay, sorry.
1: Yeah. That's somebody I've been getting into recently. I've been thinking about Carson a ton, an old guest oh, yeah. on the podcast. But I think that uh, this, the fact of these opposites, the fact of, um, of a unity for a thing that can't be unified, speaks to, there's a kind of anti-logic, logical nature to it. I mean, this is the first point you learn, and you learn when, you, when you study logic, right? Like a thing can't be itself. One cannot be two. Mm-hmm. And logic is a thing that is purely of the conception of humans and of the physical world, I think. And so the fact that this thing does not abide by the rules of logic speaks to its un- unnamelessness. That the fact that it can't be told, the fact that it can't be understood, the first line, which is really great. It's really cool. We've talked about that. I just think it's cool. But I have a question for y'all. I think this might be a contentious point if I, my memory serves me correct, but the word mother is used here. The name is the mother of the 10,000 things. So there's two things in there. The first thing I was thinking about is this reference to the mother, this mm-hmm. feminine presence that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we can talk about the 10,000 things, but I'm really curious, Can can y'all tell me about this mother, this use of the feminine?
0: Mr. Parsons, do you want to take this one?
2: Yeah. So when we think of yin yang, we have the light and the dark side. And really, some people will say the light side of of yin yang is, which is yang, is represents Confucianism, which is order and structure. And the darker side, which is yin, represents Taoism, which is this mysterious side of things, right? And so there's this imagery all throughout the Tao Te Ching that connect with this idea of Being flexible, being soft, being open. So some of that imagery is, uh, it mentions babies or infants a lot. It mentions mothers. Mm -hmm. It mentions, as far as geography, it mentions valleys and caves and low places. These are places that are soft, right? And I think this is probably still true today to a large extent, but certainly 2,500 years ago in traditional Chinese culture, The image of the mother was the image of the person who cared very emotionally and provided for the child directly through nourishment and nurturing. The mother was seen as the softer presence, whereas the father would have been the more rigid, more structured one, right? So, again, sort of a comparison to Confucianism and Taoism. And of course, there's a long tradition of mother being associated with the earth. And mm. the father with the sky. And so, as Taoism incorporates a lot of nature imagery in with its philosophy, you know, it's not a stretch to associate mother with nature.
1: Do you have anything to say about that, Taylor? Uh, you're the expert. You're much more of an expert than me on this stuff. So. Oh,
0: well, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. Um, I think Mr. Parsons summed it up really well. I think that, at least for me, the valley. The mountain and valley dualism, or not dualism, because that's like overly dualistic. (laughs) The comparison between the mountain and the valley and the high place and the low place is especially powerful And going toward the low place, which as humans were inclined to reject the low place, which that's what poem eight talks about a little bit, is that water goes to the places that humans reject. I think that's really powerful Mm. and something that... I try to keep in mind as much as I can and in leaning into when things feel uncomfortable in a way that's not painful.
2: Mm. Yeah, poem six is another good poem that deals with some mother imagery, although mm-hmm. all these images really represent the same thing in a way. But poem six, it's very short. It says, The valley spirit never dies. It is the woman, primal mother. Her gateway is the root of heaven and earth. It is like a veil barely seen. We use it it will never fail. But then if you flip over to... Flip over? No one's flipping over. (laughs) (laughs) If we go over to poem 43, back to Taylor's imagery with the water, although it doesn't directly say water. Mm. It's poem 43 says, the softest thing in the universe overcomes the hardest thing in the universe. That without substance can enter where there is no room. Hence, I know the value of non-action. Teaching without words and working without doing Are understood by few so that whole the softest thing in the universe overcomes the hardest thing usually people will say that's we're talking about water again but also you can always think of the influence of perhaps a woman on Mm -hmm. her family and for how many Mm -hmm. centuries have we been making the joke about like well we really know who runs the family Uh, and it's not the father Mm. don't tweet at me
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know there is seems to me to be an element here that one thing that I was going to ask at the end, and I don't know if this is an appropriate time for now of both of you, but I am assuming based on what I know about y'all that y'all are not Taoists, correct?
2: Well, I wouldn't identify as a Taoist. I find much of, much in Taoism helpful.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. That's preferencing to my question. So, it's people who kind of find it illuminating – but aren't necessarily firm practicers and total believers in this. How do you practice or think about these things in your life?
2: Oh, that's interesting.
0: One of the things that stands out to me is that all through, like, senior year, if we had a problem, Mr. Parsons would tell us, well, just be like water. <laughs> and <laughs> we're Sounds about right. to take that and kind of fit it to our situation, but I think that some of the practical application is relevant for me is when I remember to think about like what how would water act in a given situation and remembering to be flexible or yielding and accommodating to things that are outside of myself I think it's it's really helpful
1: it's great
2: yeah you know you think about water is being soft and yielding, but it's also the most powerful substance on earth. And and there's a time when being like water means you need to just go out there and just completely annihilate whatever the problem is, right? You're a tsunami rather than like some slow drip in a cave. So, you know, be like water is, you know, really Taylor, I I was just being lazy and it's just like, (laughs) I don't feel like giving, I don't feel like giving advice. I'm just uh, going to sound like I'm smart or something. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Well, Andrew, for for me, you know, one of the things that how it's practical in my life is, and we haven't really addressed it specifically, but in Taoism, as with many other Eastern religions, there's this idea of non-attachment or letting go of attachments and desires. And we also see that in Western philosophies like Stoicism as well. But we go back again to that poem one where it says, ever desireless, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring... One can only see the manifestations. The more you can let go of your desires and ego and possessions and attachments and things like that, the more at peace you will be, I think. Now, that's not to say that these types of things are, impo- are not important. I'm very attached to the people I love and to some of the things. I'm very attached to my philosophy books. I really prize some of those types of possessions. But the more I can let go of those things, the more I can let go of my ego, the less things like what people are saying about me, like reputation, uh, doesn't fluster me as much. Or if I lose something, or whether that's a person, which is really sad, or a pet, or whether it's something like my phone, which would really bother me, by the way, (laughs) until I got a replacement. But the more I can le- I mean it, whether I whether I achieve that or not is probably inconsequential. I think everyone could probably understand like the less attached I am to my phone, probably the better off I am, whether that's attached physically or like constantly scrolling stupid social media so that for me Andrew uh, practically that's kind of one of the things I get through taoism and and a lot of that's connected with meditation, which is also something that most Eastern philosophies like that's a part of Eastern philosophy in one way or another for most traditions. And by the way, I mean, Buddhism, Hinduism, all that is, is about letting go of those types of things also. Um, So there's kind of a common thread there. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. So I have one more kind of question or comment, but you can feel free to jump in both of you here.
2: I'll do it.
1: Okay. Sorry. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. good. I am assuming and you can tell me if I'm wrong. I think that both of you are Christian, correct? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. As am I. One criticism I think that Nietzsche brings up of uh of of Christianity is that it's like or it's it might not even be a criticism, actually, but it's it's uh and this is common in Western philosophy too, it's like, you know, you're making yourself weaker. It's it's the weaker in charge. You you you're making yourself weaker when you don't need to be. You could go out and gain all the possessions that you want, pillage all you want, uh, satisfy your desires all you want. But instead, you're supposed to give up all your earthly possessions to follow Christ or whatever. And I'm kind of getting a sense of that in in, in kind of what we're talking about, poem forty four says, he who is attached to things will suffer much. He who saves will suffer heavy losses. A contented man will never be disappointed. And, and so it sounds almost, and you both can correct me if I'm wrong, but it is it is also kind of a weakening of, of oneself, at least in, in the physical world. And so curious what Charles' thoughts are on that. Is this philosophy of weakening yourself?
2: That's such a good question, Andrew. Thank you. I would love to see like Lao Tzu and Nietzsche grab coffee together sometime, you know. Nietzsche's like the will to power. <laughs> <laughs> that would be
1: like a really intense, yeah.
2: Actually, you know what? Nietzsche really wasn't very intense in person. I've read that many times in biographies. Yeah. Like, he was like he was very gentle. But anyway. Yeah. Um I believe it. I don't know, what do you think, Taylor? Well,
0: I wouldn't say it's weakening. I mean maybe materialistically, but I don't think that's what could bring us ultimate satisfaction. But the the Tao Te Ching also has poems where it talks about how the hard and the strong will ultimately fail, but the yielding and the flexible and the weak will overcome. Like poem seventy-six, the last two lines in my translation are the hard and strong will fail fall, the soft and weak will overcome. And you also see a lot of that same concept in the bible where those who pursue materialistic gains and take advantage of other people will ultimately not be fulfilled or they'll fail in some way but the weak and the meek will inherit the earth and those who show good character will be rewarded for their good character rather than what they can take from other people
2: yeah This idea of attachment and possessions being a problem is a common theme throughout every world religion. It's echoed in one way or another. So this is not some esoteric Chinese advice here. You can look at all these religions. And another, you know, response to this, Andrew, is that Lao Tzu isn't saying don't assume power. He's not saying don't be a leader. Don't be a ruler. He's saying rule in the right way. And so some examples of that, like poem 30 says, whenever you advise rulers in the way of Tao, counsel them not to use force to conquer the universe for this would only cause resistance. Thorn bushes spring up wherever an army has passed. Lean years follow in the wake of a great war. Just do what needs to be done. Never take advantage of power. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not saying like, you know, don't be a leader, don't go out there and, and get the things you want, but do it in a way that's balanced, do it in a way that's in harmony with nature and with your own self. And and of course, harmony with nature is in harmony with the Tao. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see what um to see what a Taoist, like a devoted Taoist who's really familiar with all the texts and concepts would say about Nietzsche's ubermensch and will to power and some of those concepts.
0: I was just going to say 76 and 77 are really applicable to this and talk about how 76 says, thus an army without flexibility never wins a battle. A tree that is unbending is easily broken. And 77 follows it up with saying the Tao of heaven is like a bending bow and that it takes from those who have too much and gives to those who do not have enough. So that the flexibility that you embody is ultimately your greatest strength and equalizing what may be unfair for those who are impacted.
1: I think both of you hit the nail on the head, but I think really it's not a butt clause actually. And I think that the reason I pointed out in the beginning that philosophies of life have different metaphysical ideas is exactly the reason for this point. Nietzsche and, and a Taoist have very different conceptions of, of the metaphysics and uh, how they exist in the world. And so, yeah, I think they just firmly disagree about some underlying points. And also, who cares if
2: you're weak? Uh, you got to say more about that particular claim. <laughs> I'm going to push you on that one. <laughs>
1: well, I think that it sounds almost offensive to call someone weak. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I get it. If someone someone said that to me or somebody, I'd probably be offended at that too, but there's nothing about it. I don't think that should be that insulting. It's just words at the end of the day, and so you're weak in what regard you might be weak physically, you might not have as much you might might not have you know your peasant or you you might be a peasant in the fields, you might not have the great castle with the great army behind you, but And so you might be weak in all those physical ways, but that's not really speaking to your strength of your character, of your contentment, of how you deal with. Socrates uses this great analogy of this um, bowl or this vase that uh, has holes in it in the side. When you extend your physical pleasures, it's just like a vase that can never be filled. And and so if you're physically weak, that's not saying anything to your, your character. That's great.
2: Yeah. Well, everybody, this is no surprise, especially if you've listened to us for a while. We had far more planned for this episode than we have time to cover. There's a lot of images we're leaving out that we haven't talked about, like empty vessel and uncarved block, and we haven't even talked about Wu Wei, which is a massive concept. But hey, we're at the we're at the end of our time here, so. We will be non-attached to these things that we did not get to cover. And let's get out of here.
0: That's right. You may just have to join us for a future episode on the Dao Ching where we can cover some of the things that we didn't get to today. That's right. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Taoism, whether that be on our socials on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. Apparently, we've got uh, a TikTok page uh, now. Or at our email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com.
1: As always, love to have a special shout out to my friend, dear dear friend Kevin McLeod for use of his free music. You're hearing right now and in the intro. It's very groovy, very fun
2: too. I mean, we should have sent that guy flowers for Valentine's Day. Next year. Well, next year.
1: <laughs> Maybe we can send them a cup of
2: water. (laughs) Oh, an empty cup. But no one would get that because we didn't talk about empty vessel. Ah, so sad. That's right. Well,
1: as always, whenever your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thanks, y'all. See ya.
0: See ya.
2: we can say like, there's way too much to cover. Please join our bonus podcast. Uh,
1: <laughs> I think we should do that. I think we can, I think we can kick this off till a, a part two or something.
0: I mean, you could do a whole podcast on the data chain and never run out of things to talk about.
2: I will admit that I've thought about it before. <laughs> How many podcasts do any in my life really? Oh boy. Yeah. Uh this year's my sixth year to teach it. I probably could teach. I could probably go poem by poem and each episode would be a
1: holy cow. Six years? Yeah. Is it really six years?
2: I think this is my sixth year to teach it. You're 2018, right? 2018. 18, 19, 20, 20 22. Yeah. <gasps> this is this is year five. So so okay, so next year's year six.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Thanks. Well Thank anyway.
2: You. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, existential moment there.
0: Jesus.